I'm Jen Cheney, one of your hosts of the Vulture TV podcast, here to present a special supplemental edition of the Vulture TV podcast, a recent interview with Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, the showrunners of The Americans. The espionage thriller meets family drama has just started its fifth and penultimate season on FX. I had an opportunity to chat with Weisberg and Fields a few days before the premiere about a variety of things, including the impact that all the news regarding Russia could have on the show, their writing process, the evolution of the romance between Paige and Matthew, and about how the centerpiece scene in the season five premiere, Amber Waves, came about. Here is our conversation. Well, I'm here with Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, the executive producers and showrunners of The Americans, as well as writers on the series. Season five of The Americans is just beginning, so we'll be talking about the show in general, what to expect this season, and also getting into some specifics about the season premiere, Amber Waves. Joe, Joel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Um, So a few months since the Americans went off the air last, uh, you may have noticed some things in the political culture have changed a little bit. Uh, And uh, (laughs) What are you talking about? You know, not everybody picks up on it, but it's changed a little. (laughs) And um, certainly the conversation about Russia and the possibility of the Trump administration being in collusion with Russia has been a major talking point in the news and will continue to be one. Uh, And I've noticed, you know, on social media, for example, people really pulling Philip and Elizabeth Jennings into that story as a focal point for (laughs) jokes and memes. Like after Trump met with the Japanese prime minister recently and was allegedly discussing some matters of national security at Mar-a-Lago, somebody posted a picture of the two of them with a caption that just said, hi, we'd like to apply for the waiter positions at (laughs) Mar-a-Lago. So there have been some very, very funny ones. Yeah, I was wondering if you've noticed that. Anyone's giving an award for best Philip and Elizabeth meme, but someone should do that. Is it just? us or did those jokes have a very high percentage success rate? Yes. We laugh at like almost all of them. They, no, they're great. And, and I, you know, it's interesting. I was just wondering, A, if you guys have noticed that and it sounds like you have uh, and sort of what your response is to it. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting that people are making that connection so quickly because it, it speaks to, I think, first of all, that this show has uh, resonated to this degree that that's what a lot of people think of right away. Well, I'd say... We laugh at the jokes because the jokes are really good and funny. And I think we're pretty bummed out at the trajectory of the world because who wants more enmity in the world? We think it'd be all better if we could all be getting along more. And it's ironic to be working on a show that's examining the idea of what it is to have an enemy, what it is to be an enemy, and why it is we as humans seem to need desperately to create enemies at the same time that the old enemy we thought was long forgotten seems to have uh, risen again in our consciousness. You know, the, the other thing is we have we follow a very strict policy of keeping uh, current events and world events out of the show, right? The show is a period piece. There's no way that anything happening in 1984 should be touched in any way by current events. And we don't want the audience feeling that the authors of the show have suddenly put clever little things in because of current events. So we keep that all out. But it's sort of funny that, you know, of course, the audience is bound by no such strict rules. So I think that's part of the reason we get a kick out of all those jokes. You know, we wouldn't make those jokes ourselves, but it's funny to see others doing it. Right. And I guess that was my next question. Obviously, as you said, this is a period piece. It's set in the 1980s. It's a completely different set of circumstances. But are you thinking at all about how viewers might interpret the show as it starts up again in light of what's going on? Because you know, the hallmark of the show is that for those of us who are American watching it, 
obviously we realize that uh, Philip and Elizabeth are doing things that as Americans we might not agree with and just as people we wouldn't agree with certainly. But there's a great deal of empathy for them and, and you sort of root for them in a lot of ways. Or do you wonder whether people will have a harder time doing that or do you think people can really separate? We, we do. We've thought about that a lot. You know, the show was went on the air in a very different context and in a very different time. So we are curious about whether or not for some people in the audience, everything that's happening kind of alters the context in which they're viewing it. And with Russia having somewhat more of a hostile posture towards Russia now, uh, people don't are less likely to be empathetic. Or if, if Philip and Elizabeth sort of got grandfathered in. You know, people sort of started feeling this uh, empathy for them and fell in love with these characters. And now it's sort of too late to go back, no matter what happens. I think we sort of hope for that. To the extent that it's a higher degree of difficulty, it may also in this moment be more important to be able to view that particularly enemy as human. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was a New York Times profile of you, Joe, that was written a few years ago. And I noticed they mentioned that Every American script has to be submitted to the Publications Review Board at the CIA where you used to work. Uh, is that still the case? Do you still have to s- submit the scripts to the CIA? They all go in. Okay. Yeah. I'm just wondering, to what extent does that slow down the process for you guys? Well, you know, we're very ahead on scripts. So if that weren't the case, I think we might have a problem. But as it is, we have our scripts you know, often, I don't even know, sometimes even a couple months before we're we're shooting. So that really allows plenty of time to send them in and get them back from them. We haven't really had any any issue at all. And, and they're really great, too. They've been great at getting the scripts back to me in, in plenty of time. And maybe the one or two times where we've been a little bit up against it, I've, I've, I've asked them for what, what is in their jargon called an expedited review. And in those cases, they've gotten it back really fast. Mm-hmm. So there's never there's never been an issue. Oh, that's great. Has there ever been a storyline you guys wanted to pursue, like a major one that you ended up having to alter in a significant way because of the feedback you got from the board? No. The only changes they've ever requested are exceedingly small. You know, once on a, on a different project, I had them say that an entire project I wanted to do was out of bounds. But even in that case, it was sort of interesting because I, I made a few changes in it and sent it back and they said, now it's okay. Hmm. But it's funny. I, I of course, I'm under no obligation to the CIA. I never made an agreement to share everything I write with them. Uh, but now I'm writing with Joe, so all the drafts go in, and uh, we've co-written them. And what I've found for me, the experience is like is, I'm just an erotic writer, and I just want to know if they liked it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but of course, they don't write back and say we liked it. They write back and say whether or not they approved it. So one day I want to meet somebody who works there and see whether they like the show. <laughs> You're, you're wanting feedback. You know, I think this could be more nuanced here. I, I don't like your character development. <laughs> no, no, I don't want feedback. I want love. <laughs> love, good, positive feedback. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, you guys have been steering the show and writing the show together now for more than four years. Um, what, if anything, has, has changed about your process, process since you first started? Because you guys didn't know each other when you started doing this, which is kind of interesting because it mirrors, you know, Philip and Elizabeth not really knowing each other when they got into what they were doing either. I have trouble remembering a time when I don't, didn't know Joel. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes, we, we, we it's have It's barely up. a joke. We spend all day together every day. Yes, just to paint the picture for you, we're in our office, and there were actually, there are actually two offices here for us, but we've never occupied them both separately. We put our desks in one of them, and we're together when we're in this office 
working and producing. And we have all our writing stuff in the other one, and we're in there when we're writing or meeting with directors. So we're together all the time. I'll say that we have a very similar attitude towards forging relationships. And we, when we were working together on the first season, spent a lot of time talking about our relationship, talking through potential issues, figuring out kind of how we were going to trust each other, how we were going to work together. We were also lucky in that we had a very strong, creative simpatico. So our instincts are the same. And that's good when you're writing with somebody. Uh, I think we realized this year that if Philip and Elizabeth had been this responsible when they started their relationship and had spent this much time working on it, there would have been no show. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you guys write an episode together, are you in the same room working on it at the same time? Does one of you take a pass and then say, okay, now you take a look at it? How does the process work? We really do the whole thing together. We start by uh, taking these long walks around Brooklyn and we work on the story and we come up with different uh, storylines and different uh, places the story could go. And then we sort of move into the office when it's time to start breaking it down into individual scenes. And those get written down and we sit next to each other in a room. It's one of the sort of great and slightly embarrassing luxuries of this job that we have somebody type for us. So we sit there and we say everything we want and uh, somebody types and we get the scenes down that way. And, and from that point on, we're more in the office than out of the office uh, writing and writing together. Um, but there's very little that is not uh, really almost the entire process is together. You know, one, of, one or, or another of us will come in sometimes in the morning and say, I had this idea or I had that idea when I should have been sleeping or when I woke up in the morning. Uh, but mostly it's together. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting that you don't type. Why is that? Well, we're both lazy and <laughs> we each have carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> Do you really? Yes. <laughs> I think both our, both our right arms are shot at the elbow oh, okay. from years of typing. So, and we have access to assistance. Right. No, I mean, I'm just thinking even if I had the option, like it, it's hard for me to, to just dictate what I would be thinking what I'd want to write as opposed to just actually doing it. It's interesting when you're writing together as collaborators, it sort of helps us because we talk through a lot. I also think in my experience, that's, I find that true for uh, prose, but for dialogue, uh, at least it's become quite easy. Although when we write our outlines, that's all prose, and that seems to flow pretty well that way. That's true. So the other thing that you guys have done as this has evolved over time is, is obviously gotten to know the actors. And I'm thinking in particularly the, the younger actors, Holly Taylor, who plays Paige, and uh, Kedrick Salati, who plays Henry. Uh, you know, Paige especially has become crucial to the series in the past couple seasons and certainly in this season that's just starting. Did you always intend for that character to be as front and center as she has become? Or did that evolve, you know, as you saw what Holly was doing with the part? It's complicated. It's sort of a two-part answer. We always knew that that character would be as important. We had a basic idea of the storyline. We knew that she would find out who her parents were and that that would have these incredible reverberations in the family. So her importance to the story was always clear. I don't think we knew that it would end up taking up, in a sense, so much screen time. Uh, That sort of evolved as we saw how good Holly was and how well those scenes worked how much we could write to that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of Henry, is, is he going to be more front and center? Is anyone ever going to tell this kid what is going on with his parents? <laughs> <laughs> well, we could say this season there will be more 
Henry's story unfolds. Okay, interesting. Yeah, you know, when he he enters the scene in the first episode, I was kind of floored. I was like, oh my god, he's suddenly nineteen. Like he's a man. <laughs> uh, he really he does keep growing. Yeah. <laughs> We've tried to stunt his growth, but we have not been successful. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in some way that may work for the uh, direction you're, you're taking him in. As he becomes more mature, uh, he, he's going to have to deal with some things, obviously. Um, you know, in every season, there's a growing sense that Elizabeth and Philip's identities may get revealed or uh, that they may have to leave Falls Church, at, you know, because of that possibility. But they always manage to somehow avoid it. Uh, is it fair to assume that in this season that's starting in season five, that that possibility will again loom for them? Well, it's always a possibility. You know, they work in a very high-risk job. Yeah. But you don't want to say anything further. I think that was saying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Um, for people who are getting ready to to dig into this, the fifth season, is there a previous episode or even a previous season of The Americans that you think is especially helpful for people to revisit as they start on season five? One through four. <laughs> yeah, we've, we're not just trying to get viewers, but we've always felt that this is not a show to jump in in the middle. Uh, it's, you know, it's hard to follow the show, even if you've been watching from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So to sort of jump in, in the middle, we're, we're pretty concerned people would be a little lost. Oh, yeah. No, I, no, I don't mean to jump in completely in the middle, but just maybe something to keep in mind about what has happened before that would be especially important. Oh, I, I guess I would I would say if you've watched the whole thing, I'd go back and watch the finale again. Yeah, that's probably a good that's a probably a good uh, appetizer for the premiere. Well, speaking of that, let's start. Let's talk a little bit about the premiere specifically. So it, it picks up timing wise. We're we're in 1984, which is where we left uh, last season. Um, now, just to clarify. Philip and Elizabeth mentioned in the first episode watching the Olympics, and I was assuming that's the Winter Olympics. Um, that's so, correct. That's correct. Right, because this, the Summer Olympics that year was, was the Soviet boycott year, and I figured we wouldn't have gotten to that quite yet. Um, so yep. it's February, uh, and that means it's just a few weeks since uh, the, la- the finale because that was the Super Bowl, which I remember well because uh, the Washington Redskins lost. Um, so, uh, so the first episode opens with this wonderful reveal uh, that Philip and Elizabeth are posing as the Eckerts, the parents of Tuan, uh, who has befriended this teenager who's come to the U.S. from the Soviet Union. And I think this is the first time that we've seen Elizabeth and Philip going undercover as the parents of another children together, and especially one that's so close to the age of, of Paige and Henry. Um, is that something you guys had in mind to do at some point? And why did you guys choose, choose to do that now? I, I don't think we ever uh, thought we want to do that and then came up with this story. It was really the other way around uh, that we came up with this story and then that appeared. And when that appeared, it became the real engine of the whole story. So, you know, we had this sort of, uh, you know, food plot that you see happening with that family and Philip and Elizabeth having to infiltrate that family and that family having a teenage son. And then eventually, how do you get to the family? Why don't you get to him through the teenage son? What's the best way to do that? Have your own teenage son. And before, and then once once we got that, we knew that that was going to become the heart and soul of it because the heart and soul is always in the characters here, not not so much in the not not as much in the story or in the plot. Yeah, I just thought that was a very sly reveal at the very beginning of that episode, and it sort of it felt like it was working on a meta level to see them posing as parents again in this other context. Um, and then it's really interesting, Pasha's parents, because the father. 
you know, they're they're from the Soviet Union. He loves America and and loves the abundance, and 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 the wife doesn't seem as enthused about that, um, which mirrors uh, maybe to a more extreme degree. Sounds familiar, right? Uh, it's it's like Philip and Elizabeth. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they still seem to have that divide, too. Um, but they also seem bothered a little bit by the fact, especially Elizabeth, that he's complaining so adamantly about the Soviet Union. That seems to really uh, be an issue for them. Uh, I assume that dyna- that sort of parallel dynamic is something we're going to see can continue to evolve in this season. Yes, you will. Yeah, and that relationship is going to be important and what it triggers for them is going to be important. And like all good mirrors, you know, it's not an exact mirror. I mean, that guy's a lot more bitter uh, than Philip, and he's a lot more angry at the Soviet Union than Philip. And he's also been there a lot more recently and seen things and suffered through things that Philip has. Right, right. So let's talk about um, Paige and Matthew. That's a a relationship that started in last season's finale. Uh, And I believe at one time you guys had talked about having them become an item, and then you kind of abandoned the idea, and then you obviously came back to it and made it happen. Um, Talk a little bit about that, like why you at first talked about doing it and then gave up on it and then came back to it again. Well, I wouldn't say we really gave up on it. I would say it just didn't work for them at that time. She was too young. He wasn't interested. And it didn't go anywhere. Uh, and then as we worked our way through last season, we found she was older, his parents had gone through a divorce, and suddenly they were drawn together. I don't think we would have been surprised if it had never happened. Like when it didn't happen in that, in that early season, I, I, it's not like we then every season were looking, can we do it now? Can we do it now? It did sort of reappear and we're like, oh, great. Now it worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, talk a little bit about the psychology on Paige's part and in terms of why she's interested in Matthew, because knowing what her parents do for a living, you know, dating the FBI agent's son who lives across the street is is the riskiest thing she could possibly do. That's true. But, you know, it's complicated because she had a crush on him before she knew what her parents did. So that's an attraction that, that goes back a very long way for her. And then I think the the sort of danger aspect, the fact that it's exactly the wrong thing that's complicated, too. That often acts as, a, as an attractant as well as a repellent. I think also we're really uh, interested in stories that can be seen from many, many points of view and that can have multiple truths. And we're interested in characters who aren't fully self-aware and so are being driven by a lot of different subconscious um, motivations. So you, the fact that you can tell that story in a lot of different ways for Paige that you could tell one story where it's just the boy she's always had a crush on, and so of course she'd want to be with. And you could tell one story that this is her deepest, most brutal rebellion against her parents, and there's a a dozen or a hundred stories in between. That's interesting and fun for Mm -hmm. us. Yeah, it is. I mean, what what you just said earlier about the danger aspect, I mean, that certainly occurred to me, that that the fact that it is dangerous is, is sort of attractive in a way. But then I was also thinking, you know, is part of her thinking that if her parents get caught, that somehow going across the street could be a safe harbor for her, um, that there's that he could save her or, or something like that. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to to consider it, I guess. Well, that's interesting. I and mean, we've thought about that a lot. We've thought about it particularly in terms of Henry, but I don't think we ever thought about it in terms of her thinking that, but certainly unconsciously she might be thinking that. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, you know, last, last season and certainly after she found out that her parents were spies, uh, she was really understandably angry um, and, and had a lot of resentment toward them. But it seems like that has gone away, um, at least from, from the episodes I've seen in the beginning of the season. Um, 
has that morphed into something else, th- that resentment? Well, you know, part of what's happening very sort of slowly and in a complex up and down way that's, that may or may not happen is a, is a slow process of her being kind of more integrated into the family, or at least the parental part of the family that if she's in, then it's really the whole family plus Henry. And I think that the there's a great allure to that. I mean, nothing, what would feel better than that? And if that side can, if the resentment can die down and that side can win out, then she's really got a family again. But, you know, I'm not sure that I don't think the resentment is gone, but I think those two sides are, are kind of in a struggle. Right. Yeah, it's just it's interesting and I think refreshing to see, uh, you know, a teenager that age kind of playing it that way because, uh you know, I remember myself at that age, and I was resentful toward my parents for just no good reason. They weren't spies, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and most teenage girls are. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the fact that she's able to kind of wrestle with that feeling and, and overcome it, or at least somewhat, is, is really, I don't know, it speaks to her character a lot, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah. one of the places the show really works for us also is when we can take those universal experiences, whether they're being a teenager or being married or being a parent, and then put them in this crazy, specific, intense, and high-stakes world of deep cover agents and make it all the more difficult for the characters. Now, I'm wondering, you know, at, in 1984, that was sort of a, a big year for, I think, teen movies and just a lot of teen-focused um, pop culture was really surging uh, at, around that time. Is that something that you were thinking about when you guys were were writing this during that period? Because you bring in pop culture in really brilliant ways that are subtle, um, but also pointed in terms of what you're you're dealing with within the narrative. And I was just wondering if you thought about that at all. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, and secondly, we, I'm trying to think, do we have big, we don't have a lot of big teenage, but we have a couple, we have one movie reference that creeps in this season. That's fun. Uh, we have some other pop culture references, but one thing we try to do is not hit the pop culture references too hard or too intensely, but to let them sort of simply be in the show and let the characters move through the time that they're in. Uh, last season, we had a couple big ones because they really were part of the storytelling, David Copperfield, the day after. But uh, this year, I think they're happening a little bit more in the background as the characters are going through some other more urgent things in their lives. Yeah, and I, I like that they're subtle. I appreciate that because they, they, they're not distracting. But if you, like me, happen to be growing up around that time and, and living in the Washington area to boot, uh, it's... You like to catch those little references. Oh, thanks. You know, we weren't in the Washington area, but we, uh, Joe and I also were growing up at that time. (laughs) And uh, I'll say a a favorite of mine was putting in that little handheld football game that Henry got to play for a couple seasons because, boy, did I covet that. I still have one somewhere in my house. Oh, God, (laughs) lucky you. (laughs) I still have an old Intellivision that doesn't work either. Um, <laughs> oh, in television, that was certainly the first video game for me. <laughs> did you ever play Stratomatic? That's the question. I don't think I did ever play Stratomatic. Uh, sorry. I feel like I've let you down. So I want to talk to you about uh, really the centerpiece scene in that first episode, the Fort Detrick scene, uh, where they go back to to, to dig up William, essentially. Um, it is a long sequence, and, and it, it goes on for a while before you get to uh, – 
sort of the real important thing that happens with with Hans slipping and falling into the grave and and uh, cutting himself and ultimately ultimately dying. Talk to me about why you felt it was important to show all of the arduous work that went into what they were doing before, you know, sort of the key moment happens. We wanted, you know, we thought to ourselves, this is something, they're digging a hole. That's what's going on. What can we do? How can we show this in a way that hasn't, that feels original and feels fresh and feels like it hasn't been done before and conveys what the experience was really like? And we thought that part of that would be to have it be long, not try to sort of do it in quick cuts and then suddenly there's a hole, but actually do it in, in a slower way that let the audience actually kind of feel some of what went into it for the, for the characters. And, you know, we did a little research and, and found out that if you really do have to dig a hole like that, one of the things you'd have to do is dig, dig it in shifts because you get worn out pretty fast from that kind of intense activity. So we thought, well, that was, we sort of built the scene a little bit around that because that felt so real and true. And once we had that piece of it, we just had little bits of action. And, you know, Chris Long, who, who directed the episode and is such a great director, you know, said to us early on, you know, there's the potential that this could be boring. And we said, yes, well, good luck. Make sure it's not boring. And then he just shot it in this incredible, beautiful, compelling way where at least we think it's really interesting to watch. You're sort of in it with them. And the, the tension is so, it's this very low-grade tension because you know they've got a lot of time and you know they've got a long thing they're going to do. But you also feel that something's going to happen. I mean, you know, we're not so sick that we would put you through 10 minutes of that and have nothing happen at that. Right. Were you guys on set when that was being shot? Uh, we were not, although we visited the, the set uh, and saw them building the hole itself because the hole itself was actually shot in two parts. Uh, one was where they went out on location, dug a hole, and filmed that portion of it. And then the other was on our standing sets where they actually recreated the hole out of fiberglass and uh, were able to shoot the up angles. One of the fun things about editing that sequence is even sitting in the editing room, we couldn't keep track of what had been shot on our stages and what was shot out in the middle of the night. Wow. That's that's impressive. Where on the location part of it, where was that shot? I believe they were in Staten Island. Is that right, John? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering, uh, you know, obviously it's the job of, of you guys and, and the director to make the effort that they're undergoing look arduous. Um, but I was just wondering if it was actually arduous uh, for them and the actors to shoot it. Because, um, I mean, it, it is, you feel a sense of fatigue just kind of watching it. It's it's. Yeah, well, it wasn't easy. But interestingly, I don't think we had a sense of how arduous it would be until after we had written it and they started to prep it, uh, let alone how expensive it would be. Because we thought, <laughs> well, look, it's a hole in the ground. You know, I mean, that's easy for production. It's not like we're crashing a 747. <laughs> but, you know, it turns out, first of all, you can't just dig a hole in the ground and put actors in it because a dirt hole could collapse. And, you know, A, we like Matthew and Carrie, and B, we got another two seasons <laughs> to do with them. So, you know, we couldn't do that. Um, so they had to build the sides of the hole, which were then dropped in on location. That had to be done kind of chunk by chunk as they were digging down. And uh, and then, as I said, they, they had to then take other sides that were recreated on the uh, stages. So it was it was quite a process and really says something about the production design team and our crew and our lighting crew and our director and the actors that it all looks and feels so real. You know, I think sometimes production design is celebrated when it really stands out and it's grand in scope and exciting to look at. And there are 
incredible cathedrals and bright costumes. But to us, part of what's so exciting about working on this show is that we have all these artists and they're creating these sequences that just feel real and true. And it seems that they're happening right there in the early 80s as they would have happened. Yeah, this is a a really nitpicky question. But when they finally find William and they open the, you know, the big case, you know, the corpse in that case looks like Dylan Baker to me. Uh, Did you guys take a mold of his face last season anticipating that this was going to happen? Or how did that come together? Because I assume he's not working with you guys anymore since, you know, his character no longer is with us. Well, the truth of that is we knew we were going to do this at the end of last season, and it would have been smart to take a moment. <laughs> but although we knew we were going to do this at the end of that season, last season, we had written the first draft of the sequence. We didn't think to take the mold of his face until this season. But fortunately, <laughs> Dylan's a really nice guy, so he was willing to lay there and let us take the mold of his face. <laughs> we ran into him at the Writers Guild Awards, and he asked us where the mold was. Oh, really? We thought maybe he wanted it. Yeah, I don't know if he wanted it or if he wanted to break it. <laughs> Maybe he wanted it or he just didn't want us to have it. Where is the mold now, anyway? <laughs> you got to wonder what the resale value is of that. Like, what do you, what do, you do with that? <laughs> Does it still exist? We, ha- we have an extra Dylan Baker, if anybody needs one. You know, he should get it. He should get it. He should put it in the window of his apartment. He'd never be burgled. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the things I also really appreciated about that scene, in addition to the you know the suspense, is it's it felt like a classic American scene where, you know, like the pulling of the tooth or the folding up of the body in the suitcase, where, uh, I, and I don't feel like those scenes are in the show to be gratuitous. I think they illustrate how gruesome the work that Philip and Elizabeth do can can be. Um, do you guys feel an obligation to like work one or two of those into every season to, to just to drive home that point that this this is a dirty job? I think we really used to. I mean, we used to really uh, even sit down at a couple of times during the season and ask ourselves if we had enough of them and if there were places we could find them where we hadn't found them. But we have not done the, that the last few seasons. The last few seasons, I think we feel comfortable just letting the story be what the story is and let the characters go where they want to go. And if scenes like that happen, they happen. And, and if they don't, they don't. And I think that's one of the reasons that the, the show has gotten in a way we hope the show's gotten better and it feels like it's gotten more real because we don't uh, we don't push that unless it's there for the taking. So as you mentioned earlier, you guys have this season and then one more and then that's that's the end of the Americans, unfortunately. Um, do you guys have the narrative arcs for those seasons laid out at this point? Like, do you know what your what end point it is that you're driving toward? We do. Uh, we do. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Literally holding pieces of paper in my hand that contain it. We've had them for a while. And really over the last month or six weeks, we've been walking and making more notes on how those ideas and arcs are going to take shape as specific scenes. Mm-hmm. And you would not, there's nothing that could happen that would make you reconsider what that end point is. Like you're, you're pretty. Well, that's, well a, that's a funny question that you asked because we've really had this ending really since season two and if you had asked us then, will you reconsider this and come up with something different, we would have said almost definitely. Because generally, as stories move forward, things happen and they change what comes after. And we're always changing our stories. We're not just open to that. We think that's almost the only way you get a good story is by staying open and staying flexible and letting the story change as, as, as events happen. In this case, this you know variations of this story have stuck now since season two. And our, what we're hoping is that's because it's good. 
Um, but also we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We still have one season left to break, so it is possible that it could change, but I think we both have a feeling it's going to stick. If it sticks, we hope it won't be because we're being intransigent, but because it's right. And if something more right comes along, we'll do that. Right. Well, and it must help now that you know exactly when your endpoint is going to be. Whereas, you know, in most TV shows, you you're not sure if you're going to get picked up for another season, or you don't know if there's going to be another season after that. Like this is. It's an enormous help, and that's another reason why it's less likely to change. Because, as Joe said, part of what makes it change is things happen in the story that drive you in different directions. But now we've written and filmed most of season five, and all that's left is going to be the final season that that we'll do that'll air after this one. And we've already been writing that. So there's less and less that can happen that's going to blow us off course just because we've gotten so far towards the end. Well, there's always the CIA review board. They could change everything. (laughs) As you know, I just want to hear that they like it. Well, it's been great having you guys on the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. 